Actually, I was in the bathroom and I heard um, Adam ranting. This is the second time I've been accused <laughs> of being on this podcast and just ranting. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you haven't seen my insane Hitler rant yet, you plebs. I've seen a lot of your ranting, Adam. Hey, everybody. (laughs) 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 Just start the episode when you have (laughs) seen. As you called open. Hey everybody, I'm Josh, a.k.a. Mr. Man, and we're listening to Tangent Train. I am joined with my co-host, Garner. And uh, we're going to talk about something. Do you, have, do you have any ideas what we're talking about? Sure, I got one for you. Okay. So, I'm going to totally geek out here for a moment, but I'm hey. going to be... I'm going to talk about meta-geeking. Geeking out about... People who geek out about things. <laughs> so, what's the deal here? So, I've been watching some animes lately, playing some video games, reading books, and uh, I noticed a lot of them are built on kind of like this, uh, the hypothetical scenario. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this is what I've been watching lately. It's called Ajin. And the hypothetical scenario is, in the near future, certain people are discovered that don't die. Or when they do die, they immediately revive. Mint condition. Right. So, but but this is this is the only hypothetical situation, right? Like, the whole show is essentially a geek out on that. Like, following to the ends of the earth, like, the logical implications of this. Or, I don't know, say, yeah, you were telling me earlier this idea. What was it again about how... You know, what if you could go back in time? Yeah, I was talking about a thought experiment. Like, what if you could send your consciousness back in time to inhabit your younger self? Um, hey, would you do that, um, first off? And then, would you do that if the consequences are that the life you lived is probably unobtainable just because of your awareness of it, that you'll make choices that um, completely changed the direction. So, like, you might not have that awesome job that you've worked so hard to achieve for, or maybe you don't have that really sweet girlfriend because now your attempt to get that relationship seems contrived and and creepy, you know, and she just leaves you alone. Um, Yeah, imagine how ungenuine you'd come off when you already believe it to be a sure thing. Or even more severe for parents like myself is that um, the child you conceived would uh, be nearly impossible to conceive again. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, you know, you need to re- replicate the exact circumstances. And then the person you were when you had the kid and raised it is not the person you are now. Yeah, and an important little point is that you can travel back in time, but you have to wait the long ways forward. There's no, like, go back, change somebody's hat to be backwards, and then jump forward to see what happened, you know? It's you got to now ride out the consequences of being sent into your younger self. Right. So, so this thought experiment, and even just running through just these scenarios alone, is like, <laughs> we're geeking it a little yeah. bit. We're starting to, like, okay... What's the logical implications of this? Just you—you know, you could go even further. What if you knew other people were doing it too, not just you? Oh yeah, yeah. Wouldn't that be like you could I'll t- I'll tell you what? Just minus now. Make this show. Some people <laughs> can go back, and uh, and they're going to just go with it. But my point is, is these hypothetical situations are the basis of books, movies, video games. Even your water cooler conversation, there's that survivalist guy at work. He comes to you and he's like, hey, man, you know, let's say you only had six items and you had to go now into the woods because zombie apocalypse. Yeah. What would you take? Out of curiosity, Josh, what what six items? Just name two items. What two items would you take? It's zombie apocalypse right now. Turn off the podcast. Flint and steel. So we'll take a flint. (laughs) And a steel. Preferably a steel blade. And a steel blade. Yeah. All right, um, for you listeners out there, I 
would take um, a bundle of socks. <laughs> My other would probably be uh, lots of well-maintained, preferably new bundles of underwear. <laughs> From my experience in the Boy Scouts, socks and underwear will literally be the difference between life and death. See, I, I, I actually know how to make those if I was stuck in the wild. We're like, look, there's and zombies you're gonna, everywhere. You're going to want that knife <laughs> so you can harvest the right plants to weave. I'm like, look, you know, it comes to these hiking situations, man. Sweat management. I'm just saying. But anyways, like, even your survivalist dude at work who's doing the water cooler talk, it's come to you with a hypothetical situation. The lottery comes to you and says, what would you do if you had $1 million, $2 million, if you want the Powerball? What is the Powerball right now? I actually don't keep track of this stuff. I, I don't either. Okay, so it must be a lot of money, but not enough to tempt <clears throat> us. <laughs> I'm, I'm not really a gambler. I don't know. So I don't follow that stuff. The point is, is that people actually love this stuff. We make books, movies, television shows. And then what I actually find interesting about it is, you know, the, the hardcore geeks of these mediums go even further. They go on to say, hey, we're, we're going to geek about geeking. Oh, here we go. Um... Powerball right now is $123 million. Okay, so you have $123 million uh, dollars. <laughs> Soft top of your head. What you gonna do with it? Oh, Jesus. I think part of me would have to seriously consider investing. I know that because I've heard that like, if you put a hundred, a couple million in a bank, you could probably live on the interest. And then you'd still have several million left to play with. <laughs> yeah. You could go be that lottery winner who spins it all too fast, only to be poorer than they started. Um, unless you just, you know, shelter away a little bit of it. I think I'd go all like Karl Marx here and uh, try to, you know... Get the means of production. I want capital. <laughs> you know, maybe land, machinery, maybe maybe a, a restaurant that's already doing well. Probably not a restaurant. They they uh, they close down pretty quick. Yeah. But you know, you want to make you want to spend your money so that it will make you money, right? We both have that same answer. Right. So I think we all, do, you know, we all have these ideas about what we're going to do. Evidence that we might be in our thirties. <laughs> you might be in your thirties, man. You're like, man, I wish I could just have even more money and security. Yeah, I've got families to support now. I can't go to friggin' Hawaii. <laughs> I mean, I would love to travel and all that, but it's again, it's like a hypothetical, like just yeah. You know, they're like these daydreams and these thought experiments. What I think interesting about all this is you, the, the, to further geek it is to like go through to explore all of the logical implications. And this sometimes really turns people off. It's like, it's kind of interesting. People like the first part. They love the first part. Mm -hmm. But then like if you start thinking about, I don't know, like the, impl like the logical implications of... The consequences be, of it. Yeah, the consequences of it. Let's say, let's say there's vampires. You you have your favorite vampire show, and I actually think one of these vampire shows did it. It was one where everybody knew that there were vampires. Hmm. Uh, geez, what was it called? But but you get my point, right? Like some shows actually try to full geek it, yeah. where they think about all the implications, and other shows are just kind of like, yeah, but let's not let's not go too far, yeah. right? Like with superheroes, right? What the hell's going on? Like, why is it so hard to track Batman? I mean, they can find Osama Bin Laden in Pakistan and murder his ass and drop him in an ocean. Right. Right? Like, the logical implications is the government must know about Batman. Yeah. And that and they just don't want to publicly find him. <laughs> why? Right. Right? Exactly. That's super geeking, right? That's like, you're going hardcore geek. Right? And you're thinking about all the crazy stuff that's happening, all the... Uh, What's it? 
I don't want to say survivor's bias, but um, we've been reading this book lately. It's been called uh, Thinking. Yeah, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, which we will be reviewing on our first book club podcast, which was supposed to be this week, but um, one of our other hosts was ill, and so we've been pushing it. We'll push it off until they're healthy again. Um, so you have a little extra time to read that book if you want to join us for our book club episode. It'll be Book Bash, um, presumably in a couple weeks, two, three, I think, from now. Yeah. So we've been reading it. Yeah, it's been pretty good. And um, one of the things that's interesting about the book is Daniel Kahneman constantly brings up this idea that people don't consider what is not before their eyes. And he has a term for it. He says, what you see is what you get. Or is all there is. Or all there is. Yeah, what you see is all there is. So you don't think about the things that are not present, the evidence that is... Uh, missing yeah and I think this is what super geeks are about they'll like watch a show or they'll read a book <laughs> and they'll get into it and then they'll start their their gears are turning and they start thinking wait a second yeah, if you've ever if you've ever had something that you've been a fan of and have delved into its related fan theories then you know what we're talking about yeah because they'll take some minutia and follow its causation to its fullest extent <laughs> and try to understand the, the broader spectrum of its um, implications. Absolutely. And it is, it was, which is so much fun, actually, to go through all of these thought exercises. And I know people like this stuff. Why am I bringing it up? Why isn't the role-playing game industry bigger? Right? The, the survival nut at my job is running through a role-playing game scenario. Oh, I see where you're going here. Right? He is practically playing with himself Dungeons & Dragons. He's imagining the zombie apocalypse, how he'd gear himself, what <laughs> steps he'd take, the countermeasures. Uh-huh. Right? There's people out there dreaming up like all the fantastic situations of... You know, what it would be like to be a superhero. What if, you know, I was invisible? What if I could go back in time? And they'll super geek this stuff. But instead of actually, like, playing it out with your friends and seeing how this stuff might go, um, you know, actually playing it out. Not just daydreaming. Yeah. Um, and really enjoying a game. I mean, I know people like this stuff. But role-playing games are, like, built around the hypothetical situation. What if there were aliens? What if there what if there were cyborgs and you were in the future? What if you lived in the fantasy world of dragons and had magic and could turn invisible? What would you do? Right. Um, I remember once hearing you describe um, role-playing games to somebody who had never heard of it before. You know, they didn't even know D&D existed, which for a lot of nerds is a fallacy. It's all its own. But... Um, <laughs> And uh, I think you put it really well in that you described it as being like playing cowboys and Indians when you're a kid, you know, or cops and robbers. Um, you know, the kids would start to, like, often get to a point where they just start bickering about um, what the establishment is in their, in their game, you know. Like, the, the robber goes, oh, bang, bang, I shot you, cop. And the cop's like, no, I had a shield, you know. And, um, right. And... and Role-playing games were uh, adults that didn't want to stop playing cowboys or cops and robbers, and so they just wrote a book to establish the rules to determine. Well, did you did the robber shoot the cop? Well, let's check the rule books. All right, we're gonna roll some dice to see if if you actually did shoot the cop. And uh, I thought that was a really good analogy as far as describing it. But it is sort of that. A play on that that hypothetical scenario. Yeah, you know? like even down to just like the minutiae of you know people bicker about like the details of whether or not they would bring you know you know just think about like gun nuts right they talk about like which their favorite pistol is and they'll say oh you know but what if you were in this situation or that situation yeah. how would you feel about it right what's funny is in a role playing game sometimes you actually get to see 
exactly how you might feel about <laughs> being XYZ way, right? Like, if you had brought Pistol, you know, your favorite Glock versus, you know, your... Yeah. It's a funny way to sort of exercise the experiment. Um, however, I guess I would say that it's certainly not... Um, uh, a reasonable parallel to reality, you know? No, no, a lot of the games are not actually true simulations. Right. And if they were true simulations, wouldn't that make you doubt what reality is about? I, I you know, uh, let, let me just go full geek here for a moment. Yeah. There, in Star Trek, they had this thing in the next generation, and I pr- probably in later Star Treks, I don't oh, know. Yeah. But for those of you who don't know, because Star Trek, you know, I was a young kid when I watched it. Um, they had this thing called the holodeck. And in the holodeck, you would go inside and there would be these lifelike holograms. You could touch them and run around in the deck and create all kinds of crazy situations. You're out in the woods, even though, you know, in reality, you're on a spaceship in the holodeck. You could, you know, do a Sherlock Holmes mystery. There was a whole episode about that. There where... was actually two episodes about oh, that. there was two episodes, <laughs> right? I think there was even a pirate ship episode, right? Yeah. I have to say, Star Trek had this weird way of being like, well, we don't know what to write about this week. Let's use the holodeck. Yeah. Well, one of the disturbing implications of the holodeck is the, the holodeck was so realistic and so lifelike. Um, like, it was a reasonable uh, uh, facsimile. Or, yeah, just probably facsimile. Facsimile. There we go. That's the pronunciation. Don't do it like how <laughs> Garner does. I, uh, I really used to piss off a friend of mine for um, this word. Pre, uh, press digitation. Oh yeah. Yes, and I was terrible at it, and I'm probably still terrible at it. It's, it's close. Yeah. Press digitation. Yeah. I think. Well, you're, you're supposed to say digit because it's yeah. about your hands. What, whatever. Did you have to say the T on pressed. Pressed digitation. Yes, pressed it. You know what? It's it's a tongue twister. You see, there you go. Right. Just do what Josh does. I lie. I, I guess a lot. Like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. Don't ask me to spell it. Yeah, I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is, is the holodeck has this this thing going on where it's so realistic. That I always wondered, like, what might happen if I don't know the ship just got really clever one day. You walked into the holodeck, the doors never turned on, and whenever you, those guys in Star Trek would say, "Hey, computer." to check to see whether or not they were in the holodeck, the computer didn't answer. <laughs> right? Like, this is full geeking. This is like, holy crap, the holodeck is turned into the Matrix, or or maybe that movie Inception, if you haven't seen the Matrix, but Jesus, see the Matrix. At least the first one. Yeah, yeah see the first one. I think it was produced in 1999, which makes me feel... Old now. I feel like Matrix 2 and 3 are like different movies. You don't have to have seen the first one to just sort of watch those, and then they make a little more sense independently. Now, I'm actually glad that you brought up Matrix 2 and 3, because Matrix by itself is a really interesting movie just to talk about on its own. Like, what if you actually lived? Yeah. And, you know, it, but by the way, it's also built on this really crazy hypothetical situation. Role-playing games are good. <laughs> <laughs> Right, you know, you live in these, you know, this computer simulation <laughs> world. But uh, what's nuts about the the Matrix is that the second and third movies are like a combination of like fandom and super geeking, like we're doing now, where these guys actually try to explore all the implications of it. Like, the second movie is pretty much like, what is the Matrix world really like? There's, like, rogue artificial intelligences that happen to be, like, ghosts and werewolves and stuff. Yeah. And um, and it's actually sort of interesting in that the super geeking of that movie, of, of the first movie, actually probably hurt the series as a whole. Right. Yeah. Like, there just is, seems to be a disconnect between them, you know? Either, if you look at the, at the whole, the first one just either doesn't adequately establish um, the, the, set, the setup for the next two films, or if you look at them more sequentially as an experience, the, the second two just don't seem to really understand what the first one was about. <laughs> you yeah. know? They're just like exploring all it's these. The, it's realistically the same problem, just from two different perspectives. Oh man, isn't that an issue? 
seeing things for two, you know, the flip side again about this book, right? The thinking fast and slow. Oh yeah, that definitely yeah. attacks some of that. He, this guy slam dunks us constantly, being like, "So, let's say you had a ninety percent chance of uh, surviving this treatment." You're like, "Oh, okay, that sounds pretty good." <laughs> but then your your doctor comes in and actually says instead, "Yeah, but you got a ten percent chance of dying." Yeah. <laughs> It's the same thing, but the perspectives are uh, brought to you from a slightly different position. <laughs> yeah, like the ninety percent chance of you're gonna make it, dude, sounds really good. Like I'll just do it, and the ten percent chance that you're gonna die, when framed that way, sounds awful. And I don't want to do that treatment now. Right. Even if you then follow that up with, but there's a ninety percent chance you'll live. Doesn't sound as good as it does by itself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually think this Daniel Kahneman guy was onto something. And, uh, it's almost like he had a degree in, in what he talked about. Yeah, <laughs> and then he'd been doing it like his entire life. I don't know. <laughs> Look, Daniel Kahneman probably didn't play enough D&D. That's what I'm trying to say. He needs to super geek his own stuff. Yeah. I mean... I just kind of want to just, you know, this is kind of like my love song to role-playing games in a way. But I just feel like more people would enjoy even their the medium they watch or read about if they had even just an inkling of role-playing experience. Even if they played just a little bit of Dungeons & Dragons or a little bit of Shadowrun or a little bit of, I don't know, Star Wars role-playing game or Vampire the Masquerade or whatever your role-playing game is. I feel like if people just had a little bit, then it just enhances everything else they watch, read, listen to. Um, because when they watch it, they're going to immediately think, hey, I wonder how that actually play out. And you'd actually have some experience thinking about like all the personal, like down-to-earth, nitty-gritty, how that play out. So I know that, um, just to play a little counter for you here, I know that a lot of people, when they um, are using hypothetical situations, you know, the the if somebody comes to you and is like, hey, would you rather, or what would be the three things you take with you to a deserted island? Um, those are usually not to try to understand your capabilities of surviving on a desert island. Those are usually um, veiled attempts to understand your psychology. You know, it's it, like when a person usually asks that question, there's like a meta question behind it saying, what does this person find valuable to their survival? Sure. Or maybe just what do they like or interested in? Too. You know, right. like maybe you sit down with your date and, you know, you could ask them some many old questions. You know, one of my questions I used to ask all my prospective dates after they first ex <laughs> is I would say to them, I'd say, imagine... You were like nobility. You were okay. you you had you didn't have to worry about food. You didn't have to worry about shelter, and you did not need money. Sounds good. Okay, so you didn't need those things. You essentially were just like this, a sovereign citizen of the world. Wherever you went, there was food. Wherever you went, you had a place to sleep, okay. but nothing else. What would you do? And let me tell you, a lot of girls got a lot of different answers for this. Yeah. But which one do they say the most? Um, the stereotype would I think would suggest that shopping is high on the list. Like, gaining material goods. That's a stereotype. Um, but yeah, I'm not certain I would know the answer. So on the dates I went on, and I, I actually started asking this question once I, you know, found someone I like to stick with. She's a pretty good girl. But I started asking them um, co-workers. I'd use this as water cooler conversation and so on. And what I found was that a lot of people, who, if they did not have to worry about housing or food, 
would just simply like to just see what the world has to offer. They would just travel from country to country. And it was the it is the single most common response I get. Hmm. In fact, even the gal I'm with now is like that. She said, you know, if that was the case, she'd travel the world. Now, sure. now super geek for a moment though. One day the day comes, you're like nobility. You're 18 and your rich parents or whatever say, yep, it's all covered. And you can go see the world. How long do you think that lasts before something else perked you? Um, this adventure. Like, you you wouldn't do this for 30 years, I imagine. I mean, I don't, I've don't. i never did a lot of traveling, but I would imagine probably about a month, maybe two at tops. So, like, let's say you spent a few years at a time. Like, for you to see the entire world, right, and just, you know, because, like, a lot of people say that they would like to be able to actually stay, live oh. in a place that they travel to okay. for a little bit, right? So, just imagine how, like, if you try to actually visit, say, every major city, one major city in every country in the world, right, and you try to stay at each of them for a month, you would spend years upon years on this quest. Right. And um, I guess that's just like my further geek logic here. So um, just wrapping it back around, you were saying, hey, you know, there's this. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, so I was saying, like, you know, a lot of people ask the hypothetical for this meta reason, you know, to find something out about about you through your answer. Um but that feel that there's a difference between that and role playing that should be distinguished, because in role playing, you know, re- the ideal is that you're sitting down to play games and have fun with your friends, um, not necessarily to, you know, with the express purpose to then learn about all your friends, you know, um, psychological inner workings. But that's not to say that you certainly can't. <laughs> I mean, I feel like. You and I, having played the game together, have learned quite a bit about each other and how we tend to make decisions and and uh, and tackle problems that come our way. Well, absolutely, especially when you're trying to get into the role of the character's position that you are kind of there watching. I'll have to say, sometimes when you're actually role-playing a game, you start to get, like, this idea of, like, you know, Christians have this idea of, like, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And, you know, when you're playing a role-playing game, you start to get this real strong idea that for that character in that game, you are the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And you should not anger the Holy Spirit. (laughs) (laughs) He will tear your character sheet up. The Holy Spirit, Josh, is working through Mr. Craig. That's right. <laughs> you know, Trixie Data Spike will, will take your rubber chicken away if you don't play nice. <laughs> Anyways, I mean, so... But, you know, the, I agree that it's... That the games themselves often actually don't even lend themselves. You know, I, I just want to imagine this. Uh, just point this out for a moment here. In my own... All, I, I almost have 20 years running games for people. Yeah. Right? I have actually never ran the hypothetical scenario of what if you just had all the money and you never had to worry about food and shelter. Hmm. I never ran that scenario with players. I've known you've run the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) What if you were destitute and everything was trying to kill you? Welcome to the game. You have nothing. Right? (laughs) And I've also never ran any scenarios like, you know, mind switching or any of this stuff, right? And yeah. uh, and so your critique is fair in that um, sometimes what people want is just this power of fantasy where they go into dungeons, be them sci-fi ones or fantasy ones, and, and then break um, shit. Because, like, there's, there's two motivations that come together when role-playing. The motivation is the players. Players tend to come to the table with, like what they want to get out of it, you know, either um, for themselves or um, if they're maybe generous for the whole party, you know. But uh, And then there's the, the person running the game, the game master. He or she will have their agenda as well, either being 
um, to tell a very specific story or to run a scenario or to even a simpler one just to like invoke a general feeling in the team. Right. Um, and, uh, and those two aren't always congruent. They don't always work together. They don't line up all the time. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what. People online, when they talk about, you know, like, you go to a role-playing game for us, they talk about this session zero where everyone needs to set up their expectations. Oh, I think yeah. that's pretty fancy-pantsy, but uh, sometimes it's got to be done. Yeah. Be, um, expectation violation, people. you got to watch out for this. You know, like, oh, yeah. you know, you want to always over-deliver, so set expectations rock bottom. I don't, I don't know the full extent of this uh, Game Zero theory, but, I mean, I know that we have certainly practiced um, being open about a cork and seat at the very beginning, being like, hey, we're all going to agree that this is just the way it is. Yeah, this is how the game is going to yeah. be played, right? Uh, Either, this like, about. about the thematic of the game or that all our characters aren't going to be, like, opportunistic douchebags. <laughs> you know, maybe we actually try to play nice guys. Speaking of opportunistic douchebags, one of the interesting scenarios for water cooler talk and hypothetical situations is, what if you could be invisible? Oh, yeah. Right? What would you do if you could be invisible at will? And uh, what's really interesting, especially from, like, dudes amongst dudes, man, there is a lot of perverts out there <laughs> right they're like man i'm invisible and another thing that's really interesting is a lot of people who are like um there, there's an old locksmith uh smith saying that uh locks keep honest people oh man i screwed it Uh-oh. up it's locks keep honest people honest i think is what it is okay but the point is is that you know people aren't really as saliently Good as they think they are, and what is so common you hear when you meet these invisible these people who talk about being you know having the power of invisibility is how often they will turn to crime. They yeah. will steal things. They will you know run rampant. Like spying is basically the go-to answer. Yeah, they want to spy and all this stuff or um, steal things. What's really interesting in role-playing games, and I often wonder if it's just because there's other players there. You know, there's at least the game master, the ref, is how often the player, the player with invisibility, does not become a total scumbag. <laughs> yeah, even though their water cooler conversation says that they would. Right. What's going on there? Right. One guy gets to actually play out the power fantasy, and the other guy's just there at the water cooler, being like, "Yeah, I guess it's still a rob a bank or something." Right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it probably comes back to like you're talking about from the top is that once you actually start to run through the consequences of these actions, that your initial sort of instinctive response might not actually be the best one. Yeah, your first judgment isn't the best, and that's that's kind of like the super geek where do you 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 don't just like hit like the first hurdle oh nuclear winter oh zombies oh invisibility oh whatever it's like like it's like these gals i go on the dates with and i say hey you don't you don't have to worry about shelter you don't have to worry about food and you know most of them say i'll just travel the world but there's a part of me deep down that says what would you really do what would you really do? If you're listening, you know, I want to hear. What would what do you think you really do if you did not have to worry about food no matter where you went and you did not have to worry about shelter? You always had somewhere to sleep safely. Yeah. I mean like I know that you and I are definitely uh regard ourselves as fairly critical thinkers and um like, a funny way that this sort of manifests uh, just sort of in day-to-day life. Like, I know that when we watch a film, it's not uncommon for us to, to see something in the movie that is basically taken for granted and be like, whoa, wait, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. But hold on now. If they could do that, that, like, that like could seriously jeopardize the setting here. You know, like, I think... Um, Really common ones are like in movies to just have this like easy heal. Yeah, they you know, can heal. 
Oh like, wow! Like the 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 hero of the show has undergone um, some really difficult challenge and got his ass kicked at the end of Act Two. And at the beginning of Act Three, he's getting patched up with some innocuous hypo spray. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like they just like put a patch on his face and then shoot him up with something and he's like, all right, I'm coming out of my concussion, you know. <laughs> no problems, ready to go back in, sir. Yeah, let's you know? do this. <laughs> it's actually really crazy when you think about like um, like cybernetics even, technology like that. One oh, yeah. of the things I explored a lot in my Shutter games is I joke about how um, cigarettes and mini drugs and stuff, even like really crazy ones, would probably just be deregulated in a cybernetic society. Yeah. Like, you know, just at some point, it just doesn't matter, right? Like, like just imagine the OSHA requirements uh, of the cyber society. Oh, your your arm got crushed. Well, you know, your your the company instead of having to deal with OSHA or regulations just pays out an insurance premium for your cyber arm. Yep. Good to go. <laughs> right. It would be yeah, the implications of a world with cybernetics could be very grim in this strange like your body is disposable and replaceable and how that would change everything that you do and every everything everyone else thinks about what you do like imagine just how much of a chicken shit you'd seem like if you wouldn't get on a motorbike because you were worried about you know breaking your leg or whatever and so like yeah, that's definitely, I think, and we see that a lot in the game, the role-playing game Shadowrun. It's a sort of cyberpunk um, uh, role-playing setting um, in, like, a future Seattle where things kind of went crazy. I mean, it's a setting that has both magic and, like, cybernetics and robots and stuff. The um, kitchen sink. They just yeah, threw it in. They're like, we'll take a little bit of column A and mix that with Tolkien. And, uh, and so, like, a common trope that we tended to at least explore in that setting is stuff like that. Like, how does cybernetics affect society? You know, like, I played a character who had a lot of um, cybernetic replacements. You know, like, his bones are no longer his original bones. But he had this compunction about replacing his eyes because everybody used to tell him how his eyes looked just like his mom's. And it was the last thing his mom really gave him before she disappeared. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and you could just imagine how other people who are used to just, you know, in Shadowrun, you could actually get your eyes replaced for less money than it would cost to get your little girl braces today. Yeah. And for what it's worth, it's cost about $5,000 to get braces for a little girl. And, you know, you pay over time. Um, in Shadowrun, it's only 4000 to get you. both your eyes just whacked and we'll put in cyber eyes for you. Cyber eyes that can fly out of your skull and peer around corners and, and see in infrared spectrums. <laughs> you would seem like pretty snooty to be like, oh, these eyes are precious. would be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like right now, actually, I have really bad eyesight. And I probably could get, you know, thanks to Obamacare, um, you know, the knife taken to some eyeballs and get them fixed up because they're terrible. I got, I got a metal shard hit my right eye. It was oh, yeah. not good. But anyways... But, you know, like, right now, I have to think about, like, the implications of, man, these are the only eyes I got, and no one's going to hook me up. <laughs> yeah. But wouldn't it feel so much different if I knew there was a new pair of eyes at JCPenney? You just spoon them out and slap in some new ones. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd be like, I'd just go into the doctor and say, ah, oh, I lost it. Like, oh, my new eyes arrived from Amazon today. Yeah, they just, they just go... We go to the bathroom and change them out. <laughs> fiddle over to the mailbox. One of these has my eyeballs in them. <laughs> At-home installation. <laughs> but, you know, so, like, you know, my love song to role-playing here and about hypothetical situations and just geeking out as I, I, people love this stuff. They gotta jump on board. They gotta continue doing it. You know, it's not just for television people. It's not just for writers. It's not just for video game makers. You too can experience the joy of super geeking about something and f unraveling and untangling all of the wackiness. Well, I think I think it's it's if if the pop 
culturization of nerddom isn't evidence in itself. I think it's pretty apparent that most people, when they get into something, they, they really like to get into it. And I think, at least for those sort of like critical thinkers, um, being able to really jump into a setting and, and fully explore it while fleshing it out at the same time has a lot of uh, rewards. And uh, and I think if you can get a group of people together to do that, that's, that's just the best. Well, I'm just saying that like, Everybody likes the stuff. You don't have to be like a hardcore critical thinker or anything like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping into my stereotype here, but the guy talking about his go bag in case of the zombie apocalypse yeah. isn't always super bright dude. You might, you know, and, it, and he doesn't have to be. Well, right? He can still engage critically with something. Oh, yeah. I don't think that critical thinking and intelligence um, are at all like dependent on each other. I think they're mutually exclusive. You can just you can just enjoy it, and I think the more that people do it, like explore the implications of things, is the better. Uh, you know, almost everything is. It, it, it just makes you question all kinds of th- um, ideas that are brought up. Like I don't know, just think about like actual um, you know things that people discuss a lot. Like should we legalize, for example, the selling of organs? Right, people debate this, but they just look at it on a surface level. Like maybe just like you shouldn't be allowed to sell your body parts. But imagine, like, really think it through. Like, what would really happen if you could sell your body parts? Like, just imagine how strange you'd seem if you, when you go to your fiance and you get her, you know, a nice ring, but she, you know she's miffed because you know John sold his kidney to get Sarah. A really nice spring. I thought you loved me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, don't legalize the selling of organs. <laughs> I don't want to. I want to keep my body parts not just for stones. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of like uh, other theories I've, I've presented to people about like um, human products or human byproducts making things out of uh, people so to speak not just like the soylent green idea where you know we're gonna make food out of people because it's easy there's a lot of you yeah that's also pretty disturbing I don't think anyone would go for it right but like say for example you know milk people make milk it's a pretty natural thing for humans to make milk but there isn't quite the same market for human milk that there is, say, for cow milk. Sure. You know, we've explored ridiculous ways of using cow milk to make product, you know, like creams and cheeses and um, some cosmetics and stuff even use uh, dairy and all that. And yet I feel like there is this sort of natural resistance to like, uh, but a person made that. That's kind of weird. Oh, made of people? Right. And it's like, you know, like, what would human cheese be like? Oh. What the? <laughs> Holy smokes, pal. That's just... Somebody out there knows. Right? Yeah. So, oh, wow. But, like, been... right now, it's reserved for this, like, bizarre fetish market. <laughs> or, or or for poor parents who just can't produce the stuff. Whoa. You know? But at the same time, it's like, if it was more commonplace, like, what other weird discoveries would we make of, of like, pr- product, making products out of that? You know, it's kind of one of those weird things. Like, a, a lot of great discoveries are, were supposedly discovered on accident. Right. And, um, you know, I experience this all the time. You know, I'll, you know, stub my toe on something and, you know, maybe break my <laughs> foot. And I'll say, wow, that might make a good club. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Like, I got an idea. I'm going to weaponize this. Yeah. Right? You know, because that's the first thing humans do. You got to weaponize it. And then maybe you can make it to cook toast. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, there probably could be some bizarre applications of your human cheese. Although, I actually think that um, maybe using humans for building material. Building material? Yeah, come on, (laughs) man. Like, bones are pretty strong. So like when we're not using them anymore. Yeah, no one's no one needs that stuff. Don't torch it. Yeah, let's 
you know, but you, you could geek out about this too, like how disturbing it would be. Like there'd be certain people who'd have to like pay to not like what if you were in this like bizarre space colony where they had to recycle everything. Yeah. Even the people <laughs> and put them to good use. And um, but let's say for whatever reason everyone was still grossed out about the idea on a space colony of eating people, they could still recycle the people. <laughs> like in the candles or something. I mean, pretty whack. I mean, I, I mean, I do think it's pretty funny just in our conversation here to observe, observe the difference in reaction with you to human cheese as composed to, or as opposed to um, constructing buildings out of human bone. Yeah. Like, I could conceive a world where they might need to construct buildings out of human bone. Yeah, that's right. I'm not fucking eating that human cheese. That's nasty. That's You're fucking sick. gross. You are, you are What's maniac. wrong with you? <laughs> but yeah. I'll tell you what. Just think about it. It's lightweight and strong. Vote Garner for Dictator 2016. There you go. Now you love role-playing games. There you go. That, that's that's what I wanted. You know, like you can but, build buildings out of people and eat human cheese. <laughs> Why shouldn't you role-play? <laughs> Get on board now. Actually, you know, for what it's worth, all of you out there, none of my players have ever played in one of my games and explored the hypothetical scenarios of making buildings out of people or cheese. Could Just, come up in the next game, though. There, there has been a few um, interesting ways to make masks. Um. Oh, no. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, role-playing is fun. Yeah, I just think people... I it, it always puzzles me that it's got this bizarre reputation and that it seems to only attract, like, the nerd crowd. And, it, and let's be frank here, right? Like, how many gals get into it simply because their boyfriends got into it? Oh, God. Right? Like... It's the the genre itself seems to be like a like a woman repellent until they actually get a man who's in with it. And I'm sure there's gals who who got in not that way, but in my experience, it's almost always through a significant other or maybe a family member. Yeah, right there. Um, there's a they actually have an industry term for this. It's not just the ladies actually. You know, us guys too have this problem. The, the term is a, I think they use as the um, every role playing game needs like the uncle. Right, the guy, the cool uncle who introduces the game and then passes it on. Like role playing games right now, they're practically they're almost marketed like like um, friendship bread, <laughs> or just like one friendship bread moves into another one, and then the yeast from that makes another one, and so it's just it's spreading, it's going out there, but it's slowly. And like many friendship breads, they don't actually spread across the entire globe like you would think mathematically. Right. They often just eventually one of the uh, a, a strain of the friendship bread hits a, a number of dead end groups that don't pass on. Um, yeah, you can think like closed circles where I only know everybody you know. So if you've given out bread to all of them, they're not going to want my bread. Yep, and and the the competing breads might eventually like you know, hit each other's circles, but not actually spread to the outside world. So I think role-playing games are like that, right? It happens to do both the dudes and the ladies, you know. Uh, so so if you're listening to this and you don't game, I really th- think you should just check it out. I mean, just just, just admit it to yourself. You've thought about the, the apocalypse. <laughs> You've thought about nuclear bombs. you thought about what you do if you're trapped in a bomb shelter. You you thought about what you would do if you had magic powers. I know you have. Yeah, I would I would say I would recommend that it's definitely about finding the right group of people to to go about it and the right game. Cuz not every game is for everybody. And I've definitely played some games where I'm just like, no, I'm not coming back to that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the geek is an interesting word in that you know, it's kind of a pejorative right you know you might look at some guy and be like man that guy geek he's a geek right Right. but but to geek out about things to get really into it and explore it in depth i think it's got a bad rap yeah sure people might seem kind of obsessed maybe a little overindulgent in an idea yeah like even the term comes from uh has negative connotation and origins you know, it was originally used as an insult. Right. It's used as a way to be like, wow, 
you know, look at that guy. He's overdoing it. And I'm saying, like, don't just scratch the surface of things you like. Like, there should be a pejorative for the other side where you're like, wow, look at this guy. He just doesn't give a shit about anything. Right? Like, <laughs> you should care about something and to- totally geek on it. You know, I used to actually look down on guys who are like um, motorcycle enthusiasts or car enthusiasts. Yeah. But you know what? They're geeks, too. Oh, yeah. they, they they go, they study their car parts, they're doing a thing. When the weekend comes, they drop another $500. They install the newest, you know, NAS or whatever. Like, I'm not a car guy, but, you know, they'll put on some fins. The- I mean, like, the common um, comparison to a geek or a nerd is the jock. But yeah. a jock is just a geek or nerd about football or whatever sport he plays or she plays, you know? Yeah. And, um... Although I really like the mechanic dude, the the car dude analogy better because there's like this very technical aspect where they get really in depth. Like you can actually scratch the surface. You could be a pretty good jock and just be like, I'm in good physique and not actually totally geek out about your sport, not know the strategies of it really all that well. Oh yeah. So, so I mean like I, 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 but you know, I think almost everyone has met someone who is just unloaded a shit ton of money into these these cars um, or their motorbikes and they're doing all these repair jobs and whatnot and just, just just to what extent and it's just because they actually have a passion for understanding it fully critically thinking the whole thing and actually doing it and I think uh, I think you too listener you two have it in you. You want to explore every idea. And, and I'll use the peer pressure approach and just say, do it. Do it. Freaking do it. Just, just do it. Stop putting it off. Or, um, you know. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I was going to say, uh, if, if that doesn't do it for you, right, um, you, can, you can just, you, you, you can still, if you're not going to role play, if you're not going to try out my role playing games and do all this critical thinking, um, that way, I mean, you can still, you know, you know, write your fanfic or whatever. Oh yeah. But I think that uh, when you are watching a show, watching a movie, watching, uh, reading a book or whatever, listening to a song, just think about it deeply. That's that's my message of today's show. Just think about like what's missing, what 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 doesn't make sense about this, or how much further they, they could have gone, but they chose not to. Or what? What are the um, the next consequences that aren't shown? You know, the movie's over. Then what happens? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know, a show uh, that I watched that I thought was just absolutely crazy. It was uh, uh, it was a Tarantino movie. It was Jang- uh, Django Unchained. Okay. And these guys, there. It's 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 in the antebellum South of the 1800s, and. These guys go to free these slaves, but they just go on like this murdering spree through this white plantation. They just shoot the place up, <laughs> kill a bunch of people, and then ride off into the sunset. And uh, they pretty much didn't care who or what they had to destroy along the way. There's just incredible amounts of property damage and lives destroyed. And uh, and the show actually had like this kind of bizarre like re- reverse racism where it was like okay to just kill all the white people, uh, uh-huh. but whatever. One of the interesting things about the show is it does just end, and you're like you know those people's lives are ruined. They, they, like if you just go out on a seven person killing spree, we'll catch you. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna find you. <laughs> <laughs> like you're not getting away with it, dude. Yeah. So when those Columbine kids, they knew when they did theirs, they took themselves out because <laughs> we'll get you. We're gonna publicly shame you too. So well, I think uh, I think to sort of wrap up, why don't you, um, if you can, tell uh, a short story of like uh, role playing, um, something like a role playing memory that you really liked. Oh, wow. Okay, so... 
like a, an experience that was a fond memory for you. So I'm a game master, right? So I he usually runs the show. Yeah, I'm like the referee or maybe like the director. I set up the situations. So like, imagine the differences. You know, your water cooler guy. He comes to you and asks you the question about, say, you know, what are you going to pack in your survival bag? There's zombies. That water cooler guy's your game master. Right? He actually set up the scenario for you. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's me. I'm usually a hypothetical scenario setup guy, and I think um, some of my favorite scenario, my favorite scenario that I have actually prompted players to handle is I put I put my players in a lot of really tough situations between you know, whether or not they're going to save person A or save person B and those are pretty good right um, you know, I think I talked about this in a previous podcast about you know like you know do you choose the needs of the many or the needs of the one yeah and I kind of saw in here because I'm, I'm trying to make sure I pick the best <laughs> one well, right? it doesn't have to be the best but Just pick a, a fun one one of the interesting things I did is I ran a game of Dungeons and Dragons 3rd edition called um, and it's in this game setting called Eberron and in Eberron, there was this place. It was just like briefly described. It was like some sort of war zone in like a goblinized town. And uh-huh. the place was called Gorgonhorn. And it's one of my favorite memories of gaming because I'd actually set up the place as kind of like this bizarre shanty town, like part prison, part war camp. And, um,. One of the things that would ha- what I would do is I would the players knew that they're going into this place and that there's kind of like this bizarre military hierarchy that would occasionally check in and eventually draft the players for battle. But otherwise, it is lived in this this he- uh, this hellhole where they could not leave. Yeah. But otherwise, um, there there was really no rules. You had to do work. Uh, uh, you had to do a little bit of work every day to get a token to get food. But yeah, so but, it was like it had this funny dynamic where it was like. Part of the game was was going out onto the battlefield and surviving the horrors of war, and then the other part of the game was coming back to the basic um, to the city, which is basically a prison that you had to survive in between being sent to the battlefield. <laughs> it was a prison where no one gave a crap. Yeah, like like no one gave a damn. You know, so long as you didn't like burn the place down, and so. What I liked about it, and the reason why it's one of my favorite hypothetical situations, is I often wouldn't tell p- players the rules of the prison. Their first experience would be, okay, you've made it to the other side of the gate. Now what? Yeah. You're you're in anarchy town. And that was actually the hypothetical situation. What if you lived in a town that had almost no rules? And, and just to clarify a little bit here, more, most often, because you ran this for a couple different groups of players, um, but the basic scenario is that your characters were captured and brought to this city and told they couldn't leave or they die, and that they had to report to somebody when they were told to. And then the guy who captured them basically walks away in the, behind the gates of the door. You don't know where you live. You don't know how you're going to eat. You've barely got enough money. <laughs> and you don't even know where the guy you're supposed to report to is. And, yeah. And then you're sort of like, well, how do you figure it out? <laughs> you know? It, it was a really interesting situation. And what's one of my favorites ever. Um, I'd actually just put the game together like just to try to fill in time between other games. I'd like created it spuriously as a concept to try to figure out how to manage like a large group of players who could not consistently show every week. But the game had its own life because it was this bizarre scenario where I could see how each of my friends would actually react when they get to a place where they know there's almost no rules. The only rule is the rule of violence. And it just so happens that there's a few really violent guys who just don't want you to burn the place down. It's like the only rule they really ever enforce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? You can't try to kill everybody and you can't burn a place down. So what, what, what was weird is how uh, some of my favorite experiences is like players would get on the other side and um, some players just immediately try to find a stronger group to join. 
another group of players are like, the first thing I need to do is I need to get a home. Yeah. Another pl- a player might say, man, I need to find a way to get into the economy of the place. I need to find out what's valuable. I need to get a job. I need to make money um, for what's valuable here. A couple I know wanted to go find out who the important people were in town and make friends. Right. I had players who play, would play religious characters, and they'd get on the other side of those walls, and they'd say, you know what the problem with this place is? Is they don't think like how I do. That's their first priority. And to me, why it's my favorite, and why I had to stall to think about this, is it's just like the question I had for the potential dates. It's like, if you had nothing else going on, what's priority number one? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and uh, if you want to join us for the next podcast, Book Bash, um, that would be Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, and uh, as far as the next tangent train, I don't know when that's going to happen, so wait for that, and I'll see you guys next time. Later. Thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to leave a comment telling us what you think about the show. Or if you have a topic you want to hear us cover, you can tell us that too. Sound effects were provided by Rock Savage and Elijah Unick. Music for the show is provided by Ben Sound. If you like Tangent Train, why not tell your friends about us? That really does help. Thanks. <laughs>